Tonight I'd like to explore a little bit more the theme of heartful awareness or the way of heartfulness, the theme for our weekend. I'm always quite touched and inspired by people who are willing to take time to come into a retreat situation such as this, to come out of the routine and rhythm of your life, to come into a space where you are really left with yourself and confronted with yourself, confronted, and that means confronted with your own mind. I think it takes a certain amount of courage, really, to go against the stream, the mainstream of our culture and come into a place of really wanting to know yourself in a way that isn't genuinely, genuinely supported. Perhaps you felt today, too, the environment here in the silence of things, really the, the environment of safety and protection that is created here, particularly because you are not interacting with other people here, and you really are left with yourselves, but in a way of uh, a respect, that you are respected to be, to go through whatever you need to go through, and you won't be bothered in that. You know, it's a, it's a very specialized form of protection. You know, even though you're with a whole group of people, you have the support of the community, but you don't have to interact with them you really can just feel the safety and the respect from that. And what that allows is for us to really be as we are, to be as we are. You don't need to be anybody special here. Mm -hmm. Or maybe you would just watch the tendency in your own mind to want to be somebody special because, in fact, nobody's really noticing, nobody's really paying attention. And that might be difficult. That might be hard to think, well, gosh, maybe I really don't matter. (laughs) Maybe nobody really does care about me. And the different kinds of thoughts that can arise for us around that. But yet, really, when we let ourselves settle more into the truth of the situation here, we don't have to be anybody, anybody special whatsoever. And when we're in a situation like that, something can arise from within that is not necessarily imposed from the outside, but we can start to sense what, what's really here for me, what's really here for us, if I'm not having to buy into the usual ways of, of being that I'm being asked to be in my daily life situation. We can drop those roles, drop those images, drop those identities, and see what arises from within. There's this lovely poem that the teachers often read on retreat. It really speaks to this this, um, flowering that happens for us in this kind of environment. This is by Galway Cannell. The bud stands for all things even for those things that don't flower. For everything flowers from within of self-blessing. 
Though sometimes it is necessary to reteach a thing its loveliness, to put a hand on the brow of the flower and retell it in words and in touch, it is lovely until it flowers again from within of self-blessing. And that's really what we're trying to nurture here is that self-blessing so something can flower from within. The Buddha had reminded us that all beings want to be happy. All living beings want to be happy. That no being wants to suffer. And this is true for every living being that walks this earth. No being wants to suffer. We all want to grow from within of self-blessing. But yet, it's very hard to know the way to know how to do that. The way to happiness, to this, this kind of self-fulfillment, eludes us. We really don't know what to do. And as I understand more and more kind of the, the depth of the, 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 the ignorance or the veil that is over our eyes when it comes to finding happiness, I really see that people are not acting out of some kind of evil place within themselves. They're not, even though people do things that are very harmful and very uh, destructive, it's not coming from an evil place. It's rather coming from an ignorant place because people are acting out of their own pain They want to come out of their pain, and they don't know how. So many actions can can become very destructive, very painful. But it's only arising out of ignorance. And as we understand that, it's it's more and more easy for us to actually come into a place of forgiveness and compassion, not only for what we see in ourselves, but also what we see in other people. We're really our soul lost for the most part, and we don't know where to turn, where to go. And in fact, the mainstream of our culture really feeds on this ignorance, because I think this is what the whole advertising uh, and media marketing area is, is built on, is our ignorance. That, and, and they're saying to us, I'll show you the way to happiness. I'll show you what's going to make you happy. You just listen to me. I've got this, I've got that, I've got this, I've got all kinds of things. What would you like? You know? And we look, for, we look to uh, the, the products uh, that are being offered to give us that, 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 that fulfillment that we're searching for. I have one example that I like to share of this one magazine um, article for um, some body products. This is a good example of this kind of of seduction by the advertising companies. This is what the the, uh, text says. For thousands of years, the philosophies of the East have taught us to treat the mind and body as one. Now there's Kyusu. This is what's going to do it. No. 
It is said that the practice of shiatsu can increase the flow of energy through the mind and body. Showering with kyusu has much the same effect. <laughs> See, this is the fast track. Because you don't need to do all this, this difficult meditation. In the philosophy of kyusu, we attain enlightenment with awaken, which is a body wash. <laughs> Yellow, optimistic, the color of the rising sun, you know, like enlightenment. Fresh, invigorating, stimulating for your mind, your body, and your soul. <laughs> the philosophy for your body. You know, and then there's all the products. You know? And the advertising firms are getting very clever now because they're using our language. You know, they're using the language of the, of the uh, Eastern philosophies to even entice us more. You know, oh yeah, I'll try that. You know? And it's true that these, these products, these um, things that we can own, that we can have, they do give us a temporary pleasure. They do give us this temporary fulfillment that does feel very good while we have it. I like using nice uh, shower gels, you know, that smell good. It feels good for that time. But it doesn't last. <laughs> it's not the happiness that we're searching for. It's not the happiness of the Buddha. It's not the happiness that the Buddha is pointing us towards, not true enlightenment. True happiness is not about packaging an image in any way whatsoever. It's not about taking some external idea and imposing that on ourselves, taking anything from the external and imposing that on ourselves, but truly letting something flower from within. I remember when I was a teenager, I had no idea which way to turn to find myself. I had no idea who I was. And the only thing that was being offered to me in those days were the uh, teen magazines that, you know, they were on the shelves, perhaps it's true now as well, they're on the shelves, and I could look at these magazines and say, okay, yeah, I'm supposed to have my hair like that, my clothes like that, I'm supposed to have a boyfriend doing this, you know, it's like, this, these are the images, these are the pictures. And I didn't know there was any other way to find myself, I thought it was all about taking something from the external and making myself into that packaging myself, changing my hair, changing my clothes, changing my personality to match what was the recipe for happiness, for success. Nobody ever really told me otherwise. This is what I really believe. And in some ways I think that it may be a little bit worse now because the whole uh, brand name image is so powerful in children's psyches that they have to have certain shoes, they have to have certain brand names. We didn't have to have brand names when I was young. Now it seems the identity around that is even stronger for our children. But it's all this coming from the outside, imposed on top, not really getting something moving, something inspiring something from within. But we even do this when we come to our spiritual practice where we still can adopt 
spiritual images, spiritual ideas, and about how we should look, how we should be, how we should practice, what our meditation should look like. And in a similar way, we're just taking the same old kind of mind where we think that the, uh, that which we are trying to become comes from the outside. And again, we are caught in that habit of imp- imposition from the old, from memory, from the past, rather than letting something really fresh and vital flower from inside of ourselves. One of the great, one of the masters, uh, uh, Trungpa Rinpoche, who lived in Boulder, Colorado, one of the Tibetan teachers, he coined the phrase spiritual materialism, which is that substitution of the mind that is used to uh, getting, collecting ideas and images from the outside and imposing them on us, on ourselves. It's the same thing with our spiritual practice. If it's not seen clearly, it's just another form of materialism. As we start to mature more in our practice, we can see that trying to become something other than who we are is a movement away from our own heart. And we can feel the, the pain, we can feel the tension of that fragmentation within ourselves that we're not being true to ourselves, we're not being honest with ourselves or authentic with ourselves. And we start, we can begin to feel that energetically, that, that split, that fragmentation, where we, can, where we feel the anxiety or we feel the tension within ourselves. And I think that more and more that actually the anxiety that we do feel is this fragmentation, this loss, of our truth, the loss of connection with our heart, that this truly is what the anxiety is that we feel or the stresses that we feel, somehow that we have lost connection with the real, we have lost connection with the authentic. And the meditation can bring us back into that sense of wholeness, that experience of wholeness with ourselves. And sometimes that experience may just be momentary. People even today have talked about that, that dropping away of the, of the past and the future thought and really being wholly present with what was right in front of them. And in that moment, there was complete connection and wholeness, no fragmentation, no dissatisfaction, but real joy and sense of happiness that arises in that, in that experience. It's not so rare, it's not so unusual to come into that place of connection. So meditation is this returning, is a coming back, coming back to ourselves, where we need experience just as it is, without flipping off, without flipping off into some idea of the past or the future, whether it's some idea we're imposing on ourselves in the, in the moment or whether we're just lost in some memory that is bringing us some kind of uh, tintillation or fulfill, fulfillment or misery in that moment or some kind of futurizing, well, we're not really here. And we can come back into that moment, into this moment, and meet it wholeheartedly And something shifts for us when we do that. Something changes. 
we're touching into this question of who am I? Who am I when I'm not overlaying something on top of myself, when I'm not externalizing, when I'm not acting out of some kind of idea, but I'm really here. Who am I in this moment without the past, without the future, but just now? This is truly entering into a timeless moment when we're not burdened by the past or or, or falling into the future. This is the timeless moment that brings us this real ultimate fulfillment that we're searching for. This is also the delicacy of the practice or the subtlety of the practice. Just noticing how the mind slips off from the moment. The, the mind slips off into some other idea of past or future. We're not really here. And then the returning back and meeting experience, being wholly here with, with just what is. This is what we're being asked to do again and again and again. Just return back. And we use the breath as a contact point because it's always there. It's always accessible. We, can all, we always have a point to return back to. And in that moment of reconnection, it's a moment of alignment. The mind and the body are here. We're not anywhere else. We're not lost, we're not fragmented, we're not confused. We're just with what is. This kind of meeting into the present moment can really be quite frightening for some. When we talk about not carrying the past into the present, but in a way being here in quite a raw way, in quite maybe even a naked way, somewhat stripped of our identity. This can seem quite frightening. And at times it can be more frightening than other times. Sometimes we're really ready for that kind of diving in. Other times it's like, ooh, I don't know. I don't know if I'm ready for that kind of, uh, that kind of confrontation. And yet something keeps drawing us. Something keeps encouraging us. We come back. We come back. Something about it feels quite exciting, quite interesting, quite curious. We want to find out. And it seems that we become aware of this question of would I rather live in the delusion of things? Would I rather live in the delusion of a view? Or what do I want, really want to look at things truthfully? Do I want to look at myself truthfully, the situation truthfully, others truthfully? And less and less we're able to move into that sometimes safe space, seems like safe space, where we're not really looking very carefully. You know that old adage that ignorance is bliss. Mm-hmm. It's true. <laughs> Ignorance is bliss. <laughs> and one of the one of the uh, uh, great teachers, Ramdas, uh, said once that there ought to be warning uh, messages put on retreats that say uh, meditation can be dangerous to your mental health. Because what happens when we start to look? We really start to look. What happens to our identity? 
to our image, to how we know ourselves. This turning back, this turning back and really looking in a fresh way, I call this a movement of love. A movement of love because it's a movement away from fear. It's one moment when I'm not afraid to see, I'm not afraid to feel, I'm not afraid to face the truth of this moment. And when there isn't the fear that is predominant, love can come in. The love that breaks the barrier of our holding. The love that breaks the barrier uh, barrier of that which is not true, that which is false. Rumi has this, Rumi, one of the great poets, has this uh, quatrain which really points to the power of love. He said, if I'd known how savage love is, I'd have blocked the door of love's house beaten a drum, shouted, keep away, but I'm in the house, helpless. Love is very powerful, but we can resist it with all our might because we know how savage it can be. So what is that that allows love to arise in our consciousness. What is that? That is what we are practicing here, which is awareness. That aspect of our mind which allows for clear seeing, for clarity. It is the light of our being that allows us to see. Awareness itself is impartial. It embraces all that it sees unconditionally without rejecting this and clinging to this and wanting that and disliking that. But it is, it is pure, like a clean, bright mirror that reflects everything back to us just as it is. Awareness is allowing of whatever is there without distinction. It allows for joy, it allows for anger, excitement, for sadness, for pleasure, for pain, for ease, for fear. Without distinction, awareness allows all that to move through our consciousness. And this is love. Love that is unhindered, that is unbound, that is boundless. We have the capacity for this awareness, but generally, generally, our love, our awareness is not so pure. If our awareness was so pure, we wouldn't have to be here. We wouldn't have to do all this difficult practice. But our awareness is tainted by our egoic tendencies and these strong forces of mind that move through our consciousness are stronger often than our awareness itself. And we become identified with the forces of our mind and they color our reality. These forces of greed, the forces of hatred, the forces of ignorance. And we can't see very clearly. 
And without the awareness that leads to wisdom and understanding, these tendencies become our mistaken identities. I think it is me who is greedy, me who is a hating person, me who is angry. And I become very solidified around these identities rather than seeing that these are forces of mind that are passing through that these minds, the mind states, the moods, the thoughts, the emotions, they're, they're not as solid as I take them to be. They're not as substantial as I, as what allows me to form my identity around them. But they're truly just changing landscapes of my mind. And yet they become the ingredients in which I begin to weave the story of my life around them and I can lose myself in the story and forget an underlying truth, an underlying reality. I lose who I am and I don't really know who I am or who anyone else is because I'm living in my imagination. I'm living in the fiction of my story. This is a, a story from uh, Soul Food, a collection of stories by Jack Cornfield and Christina Feldman. The whole family went out to dinner one evening. Menus were passed to all, including Molly, the eight-year-old daughter. The conversation was an adult one, so Molly sat ignored. When the waiter took orders, he came to Molly last. And what do you want, he asked. A hot dog and a soda, she said. No, said her grandmother, she'll have the roast chicken dinner, carrots and mashed potatoes, and milk to drink, chimed her father. As the waiter was walking away, he looked back at Molly and said, Would you like ketchup or mustard on your hot dog? Taking the parents aback, ketchup, she called out. She then turned to her family and added, You know what? He thinks I'm real. So in a way we often have to live somebody else's story because people don't know that we're real. We don't know that ourselves are real because we lose touch with that. <coughs> Holding on to our ideas as truth leads us to judging and comparing, setting up this against that, and we get caught in a dualistic view a fragmented view, a dualistic view, and we lose a sense of our true nature. And this is because our mind is so unstable. We constantly find ourselves in different positions. We find ourselves up and down, successful, uh, failing. We find ourselves better than somebody else, worse than somebody else, good and bad and right and wrong. And where are we in all of that? You know, all we have to do is look at one relationship that we're in. And how many different mind states, how many different views, how many different dynamics and positions are operating in just that one relationship? I mean, who are you? Who am I in that? Where do we find ourselves? He loves me, he doesn't love me, he wants to be with me, he doesn't want to be with me. What's going on? 
who am I? We really want some ground to stand on, some foundation, but our mind is constantly changing, and other minds are constantly changing. New information is constantly changing our perception. So how do we find ourselves? Who do we know ourselves to be? Something that always shows this uh, back to me is when I look at old photographs of myself. And usually, it just doesn't matter where the time is of the photographs, I'll look at them and I'll somehow remember the thought that arose when I first saw the photograph, which is, oh, that's terrible. You know, oh, I look terrible in that picture. You know, and then some years later, or 10 years later, 15 years later, I look back and I go, oh, why did I think I look so bad? It's so, it's so lovely, it's so sweet. You know, but that instant kind of perception that we can bring to something, it's so clouded. So distorted but yet looking back we see that's harsh it's not really true it was just a perception just a view when we come to meditation we stop and we look and we can see the changing nature of our mind we can see how unreliable our mind is I mean, how many times has your mind changed today? How many different views have you had today? Times where you might have felt at ease here, times you might have felt very bored, sometimes wondering what you're actually doing here, sometimes you were feeling real bliss or ecstasy, other times, you know, totally falling asleep, almost falling on, the, on your face or in the person in front of you just this changing and unreliable nature. I mean, who are you in all of that? Where are you? When we come to meditation and we see how often and how constantly the mind is changing, this clarity or this insight in some ways is a wake-up call to us because it tells us that we can't trust the conceptual mind. We can't trust the conceptual mind. I mean, do you want to trust your mind after seeing it today? <laughs> I mean, is that where you want to put place your faith? In your mind? <laughs> and yet, when we think about it, that's what's actually supporting us to a great extent. That's what's guiding us through the day. It tells us to go here and do that, and that this is happening, that's happening, and I'm like this, and she's like that, and... I mean, do we want to trust that? Hopefully one thing that really does happen for us when we come to meditation practice is it does bring doubt to the conceptual mind. That even though it continues to arise and it continues to take shape, maybe we can view that a little bit more lightly. Maybe not put so much investment in what our thoughts are telling us. And as we begin to not put so much investment in our conceptual mind, then something else starts to show itself, something that is not the thinking mind, something else that 
you know, maybe isn't so tangible to us right now, but that we start to trust more and more. We start to feel um, more of a reliability in something that is not the conceptual mind that we may not be able to put a name on or even be able to say where it is or what it is. So the meditation helps us begin to let go, to get out of our way and get out of the way, get out of our own way. So we can allow something else to shine through. This is from the fourth century, the fourth century Zen patriarch of China, Huang Po. Let the mind together with its world be quietened, quietened down to a perfect state of tranquility. Let thought be cast into the mystery of quietude. <coughs> so that the mind is kept from wandering from one thing to another. When the mind is tranquilized in its deepest abode, its entanglements are cut asunder. So we use the practice to help the mind quiet down so that we don't continue to reinforce the tendency to, uh, to empower our conceptual mind, to give it the, the power, to give it the uh, strength that we get it, give it to guide us in our life. But as we start to let go, we can start to sense into something else that is much more reliable. As I began to do this in the last years, one thing that became started to become much more apparent to me. One of the things that started to become kind of revealed to me in that uh, in spacious awareness was I began to discover that we live in a very compassionate universe. And this isn't necessarily something that I could figure out with my own mind. And the way, the way that I started to sense this is because I started to and started to realize that everything that was happening to me seemed to be an offering in the service of my own awakening. That everything, every situation, every event that occurred seemed to be some kind of offering for me to be able to see myself, to look back at myself, to see the places that I was still holding, to see the places I was not able to let go and that that view started to become much more apparent, that, that it seemed everything that was occurring was for my own awakening, in service of my own awakening. And I, see, and I see more and more that until I am completely able to let go, I can't be free. If there's still the places of holding, still the places of being attached, those are the places that I am still bound, I am still caught. And yet, continually, the things of my life show me these places where I am caught. I think this is a real radical shift in my attitude, and I can see how it would be for people.
people that when we start to see everything as a compassionate response in the universe. This is um, a quote from, uh, from uh, Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche again, who I mentioned before from the Tibetan master. He talked a lot about the lion's roar, that, that uh, the expression of one's awakening of one's enlightenment. He says, the lion's roar is the fearless proclamation that any state of mind, including the emotions, is a workable situation, a reminder in the practice of meditation. We realize that chaotic situations must not be rejected, nor must we, reg- we, must we regard them as regressive, as a return to confusion. We must respect whatever happens to our state of mind. Chaos should be regarded as extremely good news. That's one of those lines, you know, that just from the first time I heard it, it just stays with me. Chaos should be regarded as extremely good news. Because it really goes against the way we want to think about things, that chaos shouldn't be happening that there really should be ease and harmony and peace and um, good feeling. But not if we see this as a compassionate universe, because it's really about awakening. Ramana Maharshi, the 20th century sage of India, one of the greatest sages, said, You thank God for the good things that happen to you, but don't thank him for the bad things as well. And that's where you go wrong. The radically different approach when we start viewing things in this way. Another teacher, Dibble Kensei Rinpoche, was another great Tibetan master. When he was talking about practice, he said, obstacles can arise from good as well as bad circumstances, but they should never deter or overpower you. Be like the earth, which supports all living creatures indiscriminately without distinguishing good from bad. The earth is simply there. Your practice should be strengthened by the difficult situations you encounter, just as a bonfire in a strong wind is not blown out but blazes even brighter. Can you get a sense of that? That actually these situations can be fuel for us, for the fire of awakening. That fire that, that burns away the delusion of our mind, the darkness in our soul that brings us closer to the light of things. Perhaps things really are different than the way we think they are. It's one thing that as we go deeper into our meditation, things start to appear differently than we think, than we thought they were in the past. Different things come into view for us. And we start to sense into something that the mind cannot grasp. 
the mind cannot even understand. Perhaps we can start to touch into something that we call a greater intelligence than our small thinking minds, something much vaster than these little brains can even comprehend. This is where the word the heart comes in, because in the Eastern traditions, the word that is translated as heart is chit, C-H-I-T. It's a Sanskrit word. And shit also means intelligence. Heart, intelligence. It means mind with a capital M. Not the small mind, but the big mind. It also means consciousness. That ever-present witness of all things. And it is, it is the same as the heart. And so when I use the word heart, I am referring to that which is not the small mind, that which the mind cannot comprehend whatsoever. And through the meditation, we begin to drop out of the thinking mind, drop out of the conceptual mind, into the heart, into the heart of our being. And in the, in, in the uh, chakra system of the, of the, of the Hindu system, there is the psychic center called the heart, the, 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 the heart chakra, which is in the center of our being. And this is considered the psychic center of our being, the heart, where we can be guided from and directed from. This is a radical shift for us. We're so used to being guided and directed from this part of our being. But the meditation asks us to keep dropping down, drop down, drop down, and see what can be discovered in that when we bring doubt to the way that we generally view things. So we're asked to let go. Let go of what? Let go of our conceptual minds. Let go of the minds that get caught up in the past idea, in the future idea, and the descriptions and the the overlays of the present. To let go and see what's there, see what's there when we're not so bound up in the thinking mind. In this way, we step into the unknown or the unknowing, that which the mind does not know. We step into the unknown where our heart can be touched. Not again from some mental ideal, something that was imposed by by the past or through our memory of what these philosophies are about, but something fresh for us. Something that cannot be named, that cannot even be described. Something we don't need to even bring our intellects into to understand, but a knowing that can arise for us just through that direct contact. I'll end with this poem called These Mysteries. I'm not sure who the author of this poem was. I think it was a yogi actually that gave this to me on a retreat. 
It is the ordinary mysteries that we don't attend, the everyday miracles, the greening of the leaf outside the window of the kitchen where we eat our breakfast, the crying of the seagull overhead as we stand waiting for the number 10 bus, the rise and fall of the chest as the breath gently enters, pumping the blood through our veins, the air on our face, the earth beneath our feet, We don't see, we don't hear, and we don't feel. Day after day, we sit in silent meditation, intent on the mind-created goal of subduing mind through mind. So lost in mind, ceaseless striving, we don't even know we are alive. We pass them by, these mysteries. There are other things to which we must attend, the plans we have for the life we are going to lead, We pass by unknowing, unaware of the treasure we hold in the palm of our hand. So let's really take advantage of this very precious opportunity we have here to wake up because here we really have the support the support of the silence, the support of the teachings, of the meditation, of each other. And in that, something wholly new is possible for us right in this instant. There's nowhere else we have to go. Let's just sit quietly together for a minute. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.